But here in the EU, um, we believe that God speaks to us through his word, the Bible. Uh, and so at public meeting each week, we read a portion of the Bible together and then a talk that explains it. Um, this week, I'm going to be reading for us from Luke chapter 18, verses 18 to 30. Unfortunately, the screens are doing strange things that I don't understand. Um, so it was there, but it's no longer there. Uh, if you have a Bible, um, open it up. If you've got a phone with you and you want to have the text in front of you, maybe go to BibleGateway.com and look up Luke 18. Um, and maybe the screens will come back at some point. Um, so I'm going to read from Luke 18, verses 18 to 30. <coughs> A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, He said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Peter said to him, we have left all we had to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, No one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. I'm going to invite Patty to come speak to us now, but before I do that, um, if you would like to pray with me, please do. Heavenly Father, You have so loved us that through the Lord Jesus you made a way for far-off sinners to inherit eternal life. As Paddy speaks to us now, please help him to speak faithfully and clearly from your word, the Bible. Amen. Uh, Thanks, James. It looks like the screen is going to be quite clear. So I've got some slides. If you were at a public meeting yesterday, then um, I apologise because I didn't have any PowerPoint slides. And so this week I thought, actually, I'll get Mac together and I'll put together a PowerPoint presentation. And so I've got a couple of slides, but probably you're not going to be able to see them because the projector is going to switch themselves off. So if you really want to see them, then you can come back on Thursday. But if this is your first time, if this is your first time at public meeting, if you've been invited by a friend today, and you're just sort of wondering what the heck is going on because it's a little bit like a lecture that you normally go to, but it's not because we pray and we read the Bible. And so if this is your first time at a new public meeting, then can I echo James' warm welcome? So we're really glad that you're here. One of the things that we're doing, uh, particularly this semester, as a group of Christians on campus, is we're inviting people to read a copy of Luke's Gospel, which is this little book called Uncover. So if you see people around campus reading this thing called Uncover, then you know what it is. And so uh, if you're here and you're interested in finding out about one of the stories of the life of Jesus, 
Which gospel is the greatest place to start? Because uh, I encourage the Christian who you brought, who brought you today just to say to them afterwards, hey, can we sit down and read which gospel we go? Okay? And now if you're a Christian here and you've brought someone, then expect your non-Christian friends to ask you that afterwards. Uh, and you've got to go and get a copy of Uncover. Uh, but if you're a Christian as well, can I encourage you to keep thinking carefully and praying, perhaps for those who might like to invite to read which gospel with you this semester. So one of the questions that we're going to address comes out of this particular passage that we read, which is in Luke 18, and it asks this question, can we be good without God? So I want to get you to do a couple of things today. I want you to talk to the person next to you very briefly. I'm going to give you 15 seconds. I want you to have a brief conversation with someone, uh, with the person next to you. I want you to try and identify some good people. Talk to the person next to you about who you think good people are. No, no, no. Is that what you're doing? 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 No, no, no. Is that what
Okay, the item is being used for the purpose for which it was designed, and so we can say it's a good thing. So sometimes we use the word, it actually doesn't have any moral sense to it. So the challenge we've got though, this is all very well to sort of talk about that in the abstract, but then when we try and look at how we actually use this and the way in which it applies to our life, we realise that the underlying challenge we've got is that the nature of the word is very subjective. We often need some reference point when we use the word good. So if we went, if we had a bit of time, we'd go back and we'd say, well, why did you pick the people that you picked as good people? Probably what was happening was you were comparing them to something. You may have been comparing the people who you thought were bad people. I'm not thinking them, I'm thinking the people at the other end of the scale. Or you may have had some abstract quality that you thought these people had achieved. You don't hear the nature of that the term is a very subjective term as to how we apply it. Uh, let me give you an example, uh, one of the examples, for example. Well, and the reason why it's subjective is because it's often up to the individual's perception and judgment. What one person considers a good outcome may to another person only actually be an average or a not so good outcome. Oh, let's say that uh, you have a sibling and the two of you, um, the two of you sat the actual sibling. That's how you manage to get into university. Uh, you both sat very similar. In fact, you both sat exactly the same subjects. Your parents were really pleased that you both sat the same subjects. You received a higher HR than your sibling. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was good to tell You received a higher HR than your sibling. Yet when your parents talk to your sibling, you open to the conversation. And they say to your sibling, you did really, really well. You've done good. And they come talk to you and they say, you know you only got like 9 to 8.6. <laughs> Upset because your sibling only got 80 in the ATAR, you see. Focus on the exam. So, on what basis does, do your parents make a judgment that the ATAR that you got is not as good? Now, when you come to the university and you talk to some of your friends who you've met in the first couple of weeks of class and you just have a visual conversation Hi, what's your name? Where did you go to school? What do you say? What you're really asking is, what you really want to know is, why can't you get it? You're trying to work out what you think in the second one. This is true, we all do it. And after about the first four weeks of first semester, we stop having those silly conversations and we talk about more people things. Now, as soon as the new person that you've met realises that they got 98.2, you can go, aha, I can go to them. But why did you do that from them? Because actually there is an objective standard which you and they are both being compared to. In this case, it's a ranking. So what I want to say here is just illustrate the fact that when we talk about the word good, often it's very subjective. Okay. So let's consider what the Bible says when it comes to talking about this word good. If you've got a copy of the text, open in front of you, look at it. We're going to spend some time looking at it. It's a passage that was read for us earlier. In this case, the narrative revolves around a ruler. He's a male, we don't exactly know how old he is. Um, and he comes to Jesus, who is seeking to justify himself, or have himself declared righteous, or in many respects, if you like, in a sort of at heart, he wants to try and show that he's been a good person. And he's doing so on the basis of observing the Old Testament commandments. This is the phrase that Jesus hears when his rules come to him. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And before we skip over this verse too quickly, we need to appreciate there is much at stake here. 
as the law comes to Jesus. See, because as a Jewish individual, the notion of the afterlife was not just a, a, a hopeful thing, the notion of the afterlife was more than a possibility, it was for the Jew a reality. It was an expectation that all, both Jews and non-Jews, Gentiles in this case, would actually rise again in the age of the resurrection. The man's question is therefore both pressing and necessary. It demands a response. The man comes to Jesus and is essentially saying, I recognise my own mortality. I realise I'm going to die and I recognise that there is life after my death. What do I have to do to ensure that I will live forever? And built into the man's question, as we will see in the rest of the narrative, is really the question of, have I done enough to inherit eternal life? Now, we can pause and wonder why the man actually addresses Jesus as a good teacher. Perhaps it was just a commonly accepted rhetoric of the day. That for those people who were sort of going around like here teachers, just the way in which you politely address people was a good teacher. In the same way that if you went to some particular schools, you might have been instructed to address your teacher as sir or man. You didn't really think much of it. In fact, you really didn't like doing it. But it was just one of the things that you actually had to do. Perhaps that's why the man addresses Jesus as good. Perhaps it's just because Jesus' teaching has gained a sort of significant public reputation. Now, interestingly, when Jesus pushes back against the man's claim, notice what Jesus says, why do you call me good? Perhaps what the ruler had done is the ruler had made a subjective assumption that this man, Jesus, was good. Just because he'd heard about the way in which Jesus had travelled. He'd heard about some of the stories of what Jesus had done. He'd heard some of the teaching and he, in his own mind, had probably, or may have made up his mind, to say, ah, that's, that's a good man. Perhaps in exactly the same way that earlier, when I asked you to pick who good people were, you used some particular standard to call out those names. Whatever the case, in seeking to work out what it means to inherit eternal life and how God expected people to live, Jesus then points out five of the Ten Commandments. We see them there uh, given to us in verse 20. The man here, in coming to Jesus, is seeking to show, in his mind anyway, that his eternal inheritance had been made possible by his obedience to the moral code given in the Old Testament. Now, in the eyes of the people of the day, and probably also in fulfilling Jewish societal obligations, the ruler is what we would describe as a good man, a genuinely good man. His life was lived in obedience. His life, if we had been able to observe it, would have been an upright, moral one. I would suggest that we ought to be not too hasty in judging the ruler at this point. We ought to be very careful as we ponder what the man has done. All these I have kept since I was a boy. Which of us, with a clear conscience, can say of those five commands, all these I have kept since I was a child? Perhaps the man was advanced in years, hence his question of Jesus. He realised he's getting to the end of his days and comes to Jesus to ask the question. 
Some of you may be able to say with a clear conscience, actually, in my early 20s, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Would you still be able to say the same thing in 10 years' time, in 20 years' time, perhaps in 40 years' time, in 60 years' time? Let's uh, do a little survey. Got a mobile device? Let's see if the slide works. I'm going to give you the opportunity to participate in a survey. It's completely anonymous. I have no way of knowing who answers what question. Okay? So if you'd like, you just go to that link. The number one, capital N, lowercase five, capital W, number three, lowercase Z, number one. And I'm going to ask you one question. And the question is, are you a good person? And on a scale of one to five, I'm going to keep an answer. I'll give you a minute to do it. And then when you've done it, we'll look at the results. <laughs> Are you a good person? So once you've clicked through to the link, that's not the time to opt out. Then try and answer, try and answer the question. Are you a good person? Everyone got the link? Anyone else need it before I turn it off? Where's my slide? Yeah, we're not doing that. Here we go. Okay. I've got no, I've got no other benchmark. It's related to this yesterday. The fascinating thing is, I'll do it tomorrow. And so, if you're coming to help me tomorrow, you can work out whether or not this group of people think they're better. Isn't that really interesting? Actually, now I suspect some of you are not wanting to go to either extreme, either because you're in a bit of a theological quandary about where the talk is going, <laughs> <laughs> or because you're genuinely undecided to pick up a group. Some of you are clear that you are definitely a good person, and 20 of you say, I am not at all a good person. Now, I would be fascinated to uh, keep this sort of sample and do a follow-up survey to say, do you articulate that important to me? So if after this class you went out and you sat in another class, and someone sort of said to you, they said, actually, you know, you seem like a really good person. You're always nice to people, and you don't cheat on exams, and you're like, working on time, and you go to all your classes, and at that point, let's say you're one of these 20 down the bottom, you say, oh, no, that's not me at all. Like, that's just all the front. I'm really, I'm really not a good person at all, let's take all that. Well, then you sort of go, oh, yeah, yeah okay. <laughs> okay. Now, notice, what does the man do when the man comes to Jesus? The ruler? I think the ruler presumes what category does he think he's in? I think the ruler probably thinks that actually, yes, he is a good person. He's probably sort of putting himself up there in sort of the number one or the number two. Okay? 
and yet Jesus pushes back. Notice here what Jesus says in verse 19. Why do you call me good, Jesus answered? No one is good except God alone. Now maybe some of you have read this verse and that's why you put the answer you at number five. No, I am not a good person. Because for those of you in some sense who say, well, actually, I think I am a good person, definitely, maybe, I'm doing okay, or how do you reconcile that with what this verse says? Who is good alone? What does the passage tell you? Jesus says, on the words of our Lord Jesus, no one is good except God alone. Now, some of you are sitting there thinking, number five, feeling a bit smug at the moment, aren't you? <laughs> See, Jesus' question here provides us with a fairly helpful corrective for our own thinking. God alone is the one who is good. Now, before you're starting to get really sort of, oh, theologically angsty, just keep in mind the ways in which we talk about what it means to be good. The distinction here, I think, needs to be made that there are lots of things that you can do that are good things. So notice the question I asked was not, do you do good things? The question was, do you think you are a good person? There are lots of good things that you can do. But from Jesus' point of view, in conversation with this ruler, Doing a whole lot of good things doesn't necessarily make you a good person. As you've seen here, the ruler comes to Jesus, has kept these five commands since he was a boy, arguably done those good things and done them well. And notice what Jesus says in response to that man. He doesn't chastise him for it. He doesn't call him out as a hypocrite. He doesn't call him out to be a liar. And remember that Jesus would know the heart of the man and would have had every opportunity if the man was sort of lying or somehow trying to boast in front of all of his friends, all these I've kept since I was a boy. No, actually, what does Jesus do? Jesus shows the ruler and shows us as we read the text that if he thinks he can justify himself by his works, if he thinks he can hope that God would declare him to be right and offer him eternal life on the basis of doing good things, then he is mistaken. And we see the distinction here made between doing good and being good. Notice here, what does Jesus ask him to do? Jesus says in verse 22, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, then come and follow me. Jesus asks the ruler to do something that goes to the essence of who he is. Jesus commands him that there is one more thing he needs to do and that is to put aside his wealth. Just consider the situation for a moment. There's a group of people, the ruler comes to Jesus, the crowd starts because the ruler is known, respected, comes to Jesus and has this conversation. He's an upright and moral citizen. He seems to be observing the cultural and societal expectations. He's expecting a confirmation that his life had been well lived. That eternity was therefore deserved. And his eternal inheritance was secure. And yet with this one line, this one response, Jesus says, you lack one thing. And it all comes crashing down around about In front of everybody else. After all that he worked for, all of the wealth that had been accumulated, 
He's now being told to forego it and give it away. And at that moment, the man counts the cost of following Jesus. He's being asked to change his identity. He's being asked to forego that which makes him who he is. A wealthy individual. He would then no longer be privileged with wealth and stature. He would actually have to give away his wealth. All to follow Jesus. And in counting the cost, he declines. And you see the response that comes as the men use this. Verse 23, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. One of the parallel texts says that Jesus also looked at the man and had compassion on him or looked sadly upon the man. Some might ask the question, but didn't Jesus just ask the ruler to obey one more rule? He'd already obeyed five. Wasn't Jesus just saying, oh, just do one more thing. Tick, done, and you're all good. Now, I want to suggest that what's going on here is the distinction between the good things that the man was seeking to do and, in this case, the essence of who the man thought he was. Jesus is genuinely asking this man to change his identity to Paul God. And this was something that the ruler was not prepared to do. So maybe this story resonates with you. Maybe you're someone who has spent as much of their life trying to do good. Maybe you've spent life following God's rules, keeping His commandments, doing good things, being seen as a moral and upright person and trusting that this will mean that your ticket to eternity is secure. Now for many of you at this particular stage of life, wealth might not be the thing that frames your identity. But maybe it's starting to be as you set a trajectory towards what will happen next after university. But what is it that goes to the heart of who you are, your identity? Work out what that is and heed Jesus' warning. Are you prepared to give that up, to count the cost of giving that up, to follow Jesus? There's a couple of reasons why I think we struggle with the passage. The first is we just don't appreciate the context which is in first century Judaism, a lot of consideration was actually given to what would happen after we die. And in this day and age, I don't think you think much about it. Maybe for you that's something you want to consider. But I think the other reason why we've been struggling with the passage is we're confronted with this particular claim that the things that we do and who we are is governed by an external person, God. Not our society, not ourselves, not our peers and their expectations, but in this case, God. This is the claim that Jesus makes in Luke 18 where he says, no one is good but God alone. He says two things. Firstly, there's an external standard and secondly, it's a claim to an exclusive external standard. This particular claim that Jesus makes provides us individually and as a society with some significant challenges. What I'm saying is that the the determinant of good for us and for the world is found in God. The determinant for us and the world of what it means to do good and be good is found in God. Not in a naturalistic explanation, not in a scientistic explanation, 
not in a societal explanation. And friends, if you are a Christian, can I encourage you to persevere in the Christian faith? Because this is something that you will keep having to wrestle with as you keep living in this world. So why does it matter? Why does it matter whether or not we do good or be good? Well, maybe we just sort of want to get on and live our lives as we think we should. Why don't we become sort of self-determined? I'll do what I think is good, and as long as I do that, I'm going to be okay. Hopefully you see the immediate problem with this. What if two people meet, and based on their own perceptions, they can't agree on what is good? How, how do you work it? How do you actually relate well to one another? Do you just sort of ignore each other and go your separate ways? Maybe. What if you do it with a group of people more than two of you? What if you do it with a family unit? What if you do it with a suburb? What if you do it with a city? What if you do it with a country? What if every three million people do all want to work out what they think is good and try and get them to live and work together? Do you see the challenge this presents? Because we see it now in our society today if you follow what's happening in the public media. If you see some of the issues that are taking place in the public sphere. Because some of the issues, the sort of the very contentious issues of our day, are actually strongly moral topics. It's working out whether or not it's good and proper or good to act in a certain way, to live in a certain way, and to legislate according to those ways of life. Friends, this topic actually does matter. You cannot, either as a Christian or non-Christian, just stick your head in the sand and pretend that this is not an issue. The question for us today is if we are to seek to live in a moral way, if we're going to seek to live good lives, the deeper question is whether or not both individually and as a society we will seek to be good without God or with God. Now another reason why it matters is because, and we mentioned this earlier, you can think of good in a functional sense. See, the language of good can be considered apart from being moral. And so the question here is, is it possible for us to live good lives in a functional sense without God? And I would suggest that it's not, actually. And the reason why is because the biblical account is that God created us in his image. We, as humanity, are the image bearers of God. And in the Genesis account, we see actually that at the end of the creation account, God says, he looks at everything and says, it's very good. If you have a look in Genesis chapter 2, which retells one aspect of the creation account, God sees that the male is alone, Adam is alone, and says, it is not good. In that case, I take it that Adam is incomplete, not morally, but incomplete until female is with him. See, in this sense, can we be good without God? Can we be functionally good without God? And at this point, I want to suggest well, yes, partly, and not really. Let me tell you why. Because humanity rebels against God and is caught in sin, we actually don't live the way God intends us to live. But because we're made in the image of God, it is possible for humanity, on occasion and at times, to do things and to act in a way that God expects them to act. So on occasion, humanity will exhibit great love Kindness, compassion, justice, mercy and restoration. I want to 
Christ, it all is only possible because humanity is made in God's image. And when those actions take place, you can say genuinely, they are good things. So conclude. The core of the matter here really is an identity question. It's the difference between doing good and being good. The danger here is, ask, try and answer the question, can we do good without God? I'll suggest yes, we can. We can do good things without God. Because we're made in the image of God, both Christians and non-Christians can do good things without God. But you need to hear the warning. And the warning is this. If we then think that doing those good things justifies us before God or makes us a good person, we've misunderstood what those good things are and their purpose. Can we be good without God? No, we can't actually. We need God's help. And we're good, not because of the good things that we do, but because Jesus' death and resurrection restores us back into relationship with God. And that means that God declares us to be good. Not because of our own good acts or our own good actions. So if you're here today and you might be a follower of Jesus, I want to say, look, recognise that sometimes you'll do good things. Not everything we do in life will be good. And you'll know that. But recognise that the good things that you do are actually not as a result of you. Fundamentally, the Christian gospel says they're a result of you being made in the image of God. And I think as you ponder that, it ought to cause you to ask the question, what could it look like if I actually aren't able to be restored back into that relationship? And if today you're hearing right from a follower of Jesus and you think that doing good will make you right before God, Remember the story of the ruler who to all intents and purposes appeared to be a good and upright and moral person and yet wasn't declared right before God. If today you're here you are a follower of Jesus, then please, friends, make sure you clearly understand that while you can do lots of good things, you can only be good because of the declaration that God makes on our behalf because of the death of Jesus and continue to do good things in response to that declaration. Father, we thank you that you are good. We thank you that while we were helpless to save ourselves, you showed us grace. And we thank you that it is by grace that we are saved, and by grace that we can enter your kingdom and inherit eternal life. Amen. Thanks for coming to public meeting. I hope we'll see you next week.